Hello, welcome to the Sentencing Council podcast, Sentencing Explained. My name is Peter McClellan, and I am the chair of the council. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Sentencing is a controversial topic. You often hear complaints that a sentence is too low especially when the offender is guilty of a violent or sexual crime. Criticisms in newspapers are often expressed in strident language. Hopeless judges impose light sentences. Child killers given way too much mercy by our courts. Courts go soft on gun crimes. Lenient sentences are travesty of justice. You never hear criticism of a sentence because it is too heavy. The Sentencing Council was created in 2003. As we will learn in today's episode, it was a response to a heightened public concern about the sentences that judges were imposing. In this podcast series, we will talk with a number of judges of different New South Wales courts who will discuss the statutory framework for sentencing and how judges go about their task. We will also talk to prosecutors, defence counsel and discuss imprisonment and the parole system. We hope you will find the podcast interesting and informative. Apart from creating the Sentencing Council, the Parliament in 2003 responded to concerns about sentencing by making significant amendments to the statutory rules that judges are required to follow. The most significant of these changes was to provide guidance to judges as to the appropriate sentence by creating for relevant offences a standard non-parole period. In most cases, when an offender is sentenced to a term of imprisonment, the judge will provide the length of time which the offender must serve in prison. This is known as the non-parole period. The judge will also determine the time during which the offender must accept supervision after their release from prison. This is known as the parole period. As part of the reforms in 2003, for some of the more serious offences, Parliament identified the non-parole period for an offence in the mid-range of seriousness for that type of offence. This is known as the standard non-parole period and is a guidepost to judges to help them decide the appropriate sentence and non-parole period for individual offenders. Both the standard non-parole period and the maximum penalty are used by judges when sentencing an offender. At the same time as providing standard non-parole periods, Parliament also created statutory lists of aggravating and mitigating factors which a judge must consider when deciding the appropriate sentence. We will learn today about the origin of these reforms. Later episodes of this podcast will discuss them in detail and how judges apply them when sentencing offenders. The Minister of the New South Wales Government responsible for the reform was Bob Devis, who was then the Attorney-General. Bob is with us today to talk about these issues and the part he played in the legislative reforms. Welcome, Bob. Uh, good morning, Peter. Now, Bob, you had a long period uh, with ministerial responsibilities in New South Wales. Can you give us some understanding of the tasks that you performed as a minister? Well, I I had two periods within the New South Wales Parliament, uh, 81 to 88 and 95 to 2007. And uh, during that time, I had uh, a fairly substantial number of portfolios, but 
In that second period, I was for quite a long time uh, Minister for Corrections and Emergency Services, but also Minister for Environment and Attorney General. And uh, it was the, the combination of the Corrective Services and it- Attorney General uh, that uh, brought me face to face with the kinds of circumstances that uh, actually led to the decision to create the Sentencing Council. You've written of those circumstances in a very informative paper, which I think you called The Devil's Triangle, uh, a captivating name. Um, but can you, uh, can you tell us what was happening in the community at the time that needed a response from government? Well, it's, it is, I suppose, unsurprising that uh, the exact circumstances political and social circumstances at the turn of the 20th century are quite unlike those that we experience at the moment. There were a number of very high-profile events in the world. The the, the, uh, destruction of the World Trade Center in New York by uh, planes flown by terrorists, Uh, a number of very serious bombing uh, events, uh, one in Bali, uh, which killed, I believe, over 70 Australian tourists, others at the Australian Embassy in Bali. There was a bomb uh, by uh, a bomb uh, attack uh, perpetrated by Islamic terrorists in London, which killed uh, uh, Australians. And at the same time, there were in Australia a series of very high profile and terrible criminal events. In particular, there was a series of pack rapes uh, by uh, some men known as the Scaff Brothers, and there were a number of other high-profile murders. You will see that uh, these events were often associated with uh, uh, people of Muslim background, and therefore there was a, within the community, uh, much uh, concern and uh, perturbation, uh, which had something of a racial, religious uh, uh, context to it. So uh, these were awful circumstances to have to, to, to deal with at a political level. And at the same time, we had had a gradual increase of crime throughout the uh, 20th century and into the, into the very early years of the present century uh, that was uh, uh, in large part uh, heroin-related, but it was the kind of crime that affected people day-to-day in their homes, lots of street crime, burglaries. So you, you had a general context in which popular and tabloid media uh, could uh, – sent itself into paroxysms of outrage, uh, which in turn affected many people in the community. There's not much of that kind of of, uh, of feeling at all around the the tabloid media these days. Occasionally, there's a little bit of outrage expressed about this or that criminal action. But in those years, there was a frenzy. It wasn't just the tabloid media either. The the Sydney Morning Herald was uh, uh, intensely critical of the government and over time of the court processes that were in, were uh, uh, actually the consequence of those uh, pack rapes that I mentioned. 
And we knew, we in the government of New South Wales knew in 2003 that the uh, coming state election would actually be dominated by uh, the perception of people in the public that the courts were not giving severe or sentences that were severe enough for crimes that were being uh, committed in the community. The idea that judges were soft on crime and therefore also that the government was soft on crime was a tremendously powerful idea. It was politically uh, unavoidable and therefore something politically had to be done about it. If you were to get a situation where the uh, then opposition would win government and, as it was promising, introduce, for instance, mandatory sentences. So you would have, you would have the uh, attacks led by uh, tabloid radio programs supported by tabloid newspaper uh, articles and you would have uh, parliamentary insistence that uh, laws should be made or the, the crime, the criminal law should be made more, uh, more, uh, punitive and, uh, that, for instance, um, crimes should be subject to, uh, mandatory sentencing. So you had, a, you had a situation where something had got to be done or many of the presumptions that we had always previously made about uh, the uh, appropriate uh, punishment under the civil law and uh, appropriate uh, freedom for judges to make uh, decisions as they saw fit under the uh, sentencing laws that we understood them, were all going to be overthrown. That was the reality that I faced, and that was the circumstance in which I introduced the rules concerning uh, uh, standard um, uh, non-parole periods and announced that I would set up the Sentencing Council. Can I, uh, can I then ask you, before we get into the detail of that, um, what process did you go through um, in your department or otherwise when developing the idea of standard non-parole periods? It arose out of discussions between my staff, staff of the Attorney General's Department, and uh, uh, a number of uh, barristers uh, proficient in the criminal law that uh, we sought to uh, uh, assist us in the process. There was, in effect, a task force considering what might be done and this is the point, what might be done to restore public confidence in the criminal law while at the same time uh, maintaining the essential, the, the essential assumptions of the, of the common law about appropriate approaches to the sentencing of people committed, people convicted of crimes. In other words, we wanted to maintain judicial discretion, but we were faced with a political circumstance in which judicial discretion was widely mistrusted. We have a situation where in, in Australia, it's generally the case uh, that the rule of law is deeply respected and court decisions are accepted, even if they're unpopular. But that's a, not a, a circumstance that can be entirely relied upon. Uh, 
public trust can be undermined, and it is undermined if you have a combination of some terrible crimes, some some circumstances that arouse, arouse uh, fear in the community, like terrorist attacks, and you put into that mix um, some very hysterical uh, tabloid media behaviour. Uh, that that was what we got to deal with. Somehow or other, protect the traditional and appropriate ideas of the of, of, of the law and the discretion of judges. Um, from the the demands that were being made. Did any ideas that informed the outcome that you put in place come from other jurisdictions, in particular overseas? There were some consideration of these kinds of problems going on throughout the Anglo-Saxon world. Uh, again, one has to work a little hard to, to, um, to be able to reproduce an idea of the circumstances at the time. But in Britain and the United States, we had seen the rise of what is called law and order politics. And what we were experiencing in New South Wales was just another manifestation of th this, this uh, particular phenomena. It, Margaret Thatcher in England invented law and order politics. She, she ran a campaign in the 1980s just saying, look, this country is going to pot, and uh, the reasons really are is that uh, we've got an out-of-control youth culture filled up with uh, with pop singers and people that that uh, uh, somehow or other uh, uh, flaunt our traditional values, and we've got crime that's out of control, and uh, it, it's the fault of it's 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 the fault of liberals and hippies, and we've got to do something about it. And people in England rather agreed with her, large enough anyway to elect her. And this was a, a kind of rhetoric that was extremely hard to deal with. That I've been describing the situation in New South Wales, you know, at the turn of this century. That was the situation in Britain more in the nineteen eighties. A big group of of voters in the middle of the spectrum went along with the idea that. Uh, society was going downhill, and we'd got to get far more, uh, uh, far, far, far more vigorous in prosecuting uh, and punishing crime. So, it, you know, the only way that in this politics could be dealt with in Britain was that a young, a young shadow Home Secretary by the name of Tony Blair invented an idea. He said, "Well, we, on the other side of politics, will also be tough on crime." But we'll be tough on the causes of crime. So it was a, it was a, a an attempt to bring back a more progressive idea, which at least acknowledged that uh, the, the the causes of crime were 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 uh, economic and social. In reality, we saw far more uh, toughness on crime than toughness on the causes of crime from Tony Blair. Yeah. Now, uh, when you um, developed the the idea of um, standard on parole periods. Did you receive support from the opposition uh, to implement standard non-parole periods or, or did it require uh, the matter to go to a political contest, as it were? I don't recall there being particular criticism of the idea from the opposition. Uh, we, were, we were in the kind of political environment which the opposition basically said that whatever the government did wasn't enough to curb the excesses 
of uh, of criminals in our community. So I imagine, but the the, the legislation passed uh, easily enough, uh, but um, uh, it was not especially supported by the the opposition, in my recollection, and indeed, and indeed, um, it must be said that during the election campaign that followed, the opposition actually put up billboards around Sydney which said that the the government ha- was making excuses for criminals and it gave a list of all the mitigating factors that uh, my legislation has said a judge could take into account when they were when they were bringing down a sentence and the mitigating factors were in fact, just a kind of a rough codification of the criminal law as we understood. In other words, my legislation had been very careful to preserve judicial discretion, although it had put in some extra guideposts, as it were, for judges. The mechanism through which we achieved that, that, that protection was to codify, or at least to list, the mitigating factors that a judge could properly take into account, and this was not controversial with judges either. They, this was a list that uh, everybody agreed about. But nevertheless, at a political level, that was said to be Bob Carr's excuses for letting criminals uh, off with lenient sentences. Well, pol- political discussions are matters that you understand much better, much better than I do, Bob. Uh, but uh, uh, do we understand that um, when you introduce standard non-parole periods, uh, at the same time when you speak of listing the mitigating factors, and, and you listed the aggravating factors as yes. well, that was 21A, which was introduced as a package, as it were, in the legislation. So you got standard non-parole periods and the list of uh, uh, aggravating and mitigating factors at the same time. Yes. We did, and this was this was all part and parcel of the idea uh, of the of, of the mechanism, as it were, for preserving judicial discretion. It must be said also that the sentencing council was introduced at this time with the basic purpose also of ensuring that uh, the public could have confidence in the working of the legal system. How did you see the sentencing council carrying out its task? to maintain confidence? I saw that the Sentencing Council could make recommendations about appropriate sentences and other aspects of the sentencing system uh, that might be seen to be a little bit separated from politics. The idea was that that there would be a great benefit to be able to separate out uh, basic deliberations about uh, the the appropriate level of a sentence in any particular case uh, from everyday politics. That was the that was the the hope, and uh, I think that the hope was to some degree fulfilled. And you provided, I think, that a retired judge would chair the sentencing council. There would be a retired judge, and there would be a series of, of people uh, within the membership of the sentencing council that had appropriate expertise, uh, in, and there would be representatives of the community as well. In your time as attorney, I assume you referred 
a number of matters to the Sentencing Council for consideration and report. Yes. Uh, the Sentencing Council had only been going for a relatively short time when I left the portfolio, but I had begun the process of referring specific questions to the Sentencing Council for resolution, always, always in the hope and expectation that uh, this um, uh, detached consideration of these matters would lead to far better conclusions than a merely uh, political resolution. Now, as always happens, of course, the courts had to construe and apply the legislation that you had carried through the parliament. And I think there was a decision of the Court of Criminal Appeal in Way that looked at uh, Santa non-parole periods and explained how the court saw their implementation. Yes. So the the Way decision, which was brought down by a very powerful uh, bench of the Court of Criminal Appeal, as I recall, uh, uh, insisted that the legislation was asking for judges to go through a two-stage process, one in which they decided whether or not it was uh, this was a, a case in which a standard non-parole period would apply, and then a second process in which they worked out the relationship of the particular uh, the particular case to their to that uh, to that benchmark, and it was in fact uh, a complicated uh, procedure about which many judges in the uh, uh, the trial court uh, were far less than happy. Um, and it was it was the case of Muldrock in the High Court some years later that uh, established a kind of a different role for standard non-parole periods and for and for this legislation. In its essence, that later Muldrock decision just said, "Look, the standard non-parole period is a guidepost for a judge, just in the same way as the." long-established statutory maximum sentence provisions have been. Um, there are two guideposts now, they said, the, the maximum sentence and the standard non-parole period. And they also pointed out, or they also uh, uh, concluded, that the, you know, the, the, the central purpose of the, uh, uh, the key provision of my legislation was the one that said that sentencing judges must state fully uh, the reasons for arriving at, at any sentence that had been imposed. Uh, and they, they, they went further. They actually said that uh, the reasons for the specification of non-parole periods, uh, either higher or lower than the, the, the standard non-parole period, would assist in appellate review and that it would promote consistency in, in, in sentencing for those kinds of offences. And that is, in fact, what I most wanted to do, to promote consistency because that, that greatly lowers the opportunity for criticism, especially uninformed tabloid criticism of uh, decisions, and, and uh, uh, a it's a kind of procedure that, like the Sentencing Council, can hopefully, uh, hopefully, you know, raise public awareness in a constructive way about the whole sen the whole sentencing process. I think uh, it's generally accepted that when you introduced the legislation and it first 
came to be utilised, the impact was to increase uh, the sentences that judges were imposing when standard non-parole periods applied. Yes. Uh, but uh, you probably don't remember, but I wrote the judgment in the Court of Criminal Appeal in Maldrock, uh, when, of course, I was overturned by the High Court. Uh, but uh, I think it's also accepted that after Maldrock, there may have been some lessening in the sentences that have been imposed. Yes. Obviously, this process that I was engaged in was uh, a political one. You know, the meaning of my paper, The Devil's Triangle, is that, you know, the person who's the Attorney General sits at the conjuncture of politics, the law, and the media. It's, it's often a terrifically uncomfortable position to be in, and the that, that's the devil, and, and you can't avoid it. The, I understand how it was that, that you made the, you, that you made your judgment <laughs> in Muldrock, but you will understand that I was also more than pleased when the High Court disagreed with you. Uh, and yeah. we were, we were both fulfilling our roles, Peter. And, but yeah. the outcome, the idea that the standard uh, non-parole period should be a, a guidepost just like the, the long-established um, uh, maximum sentence. I was in a situation where I'd got to deal in the middle of that devil's triangle between, between, with the politics and the media and the law and to try and find a way in which we could, on the one hand, maintain the integrity of the judicial and sentencing processes and on the other deal with some perfectly horrible politics that were threatening to overwhelm our state at the time. And, you know, upon long reflection, uh, if I could have cast the legislation so that it was more obviously uh, uh, pr providing for the kind of arrangements that Muldrock established that rather than the kind of arrangements that Way established, I'd have been happy. Well, I think it would be generally accepted, certainly by judges, um, that you managed to solve the very difficult problem in a very effective way. Uh, but, of course, it took uh, time for mm. the situation to resolve itself and Muldrock to become the accepted authority. Can I turn finally to guideline judgments? Did you play any part in the development of guideline judgments? Guideline judgments were, uh, were in all truth, an earlier attempt to deal with the kinds of problems that I've been talking about. Law and order politics is uh, a poisonous form of public political contest. It involves the deliberate generation of feelings of outrage in the community, which are the opposite to rational deliberation about circumstances that must be dealt with in, in society. Law and order politics is the enemy of of judicial discretion and and the consideration of the circumstances of individuals who have broken the law and so you've got you've got to try and find ways to deal with law and order politics when it when when it arises in a particularly virulent form it had been going on for through the 90s really 
And the guideline judgments were an earlier attempt to try and deal with media attacks on the courts and on the legal profession. Um, and they had some considerable success, but um, in the frenzy of the early 2000s, they were not sufficient to, to, uh, to, to deal with the, with the circumstance that was indeed threatening to run out of control. Yes, I think there's a limited number of guideline judgments, but some of them have proved to be of immense assistance to the judges, uh, although there haven't been any guideline judgments now for some years. And I, I, I would imagine you could be content that the reforms that you put in place really filled the void ultimately, and hence the, the processes have settled down. See, since the early 2000s, the rate of crime has been falling, uh, precipitately in the case of some violent crimes. So you don't have the essential driving circumstances to, to, to generate uh, really serious law and order politics. People don't see any, in, in, in politics, see less, less advantage in attempting to exploit them. And law and order politics may be uh, manifest in various ways. The spreading of fear and irrationality uh, on the basis of some actual real concrete problems that need to be solved. That's, that, that's the problem. And um, if those politics are allowed to run out of control, they begin to break down the uh, ordinary assumptions about uh, the role of courts in our system of law, uh, they begin to taint public confidence in the legal system. And uh, if they're not dealt with, uh, they can lead to most serious uh, societal breakdown, I think. You have been listening to the first episode of the Sentencing Council's podcast series. Next time, we will talk with some members of the Council about the work the Council does.